We're talking about, over the last several weeks, the idea of losing our arrogance about things, and we kind of come to a conclusion on that one as we come to the end of 1 Corinthians 6, losing our arrogance, and this time it's about sexual immorality. Now, there's more to it than that. There's a lot of times where we think of this only in terms of something that we go, well, that's not me, so I guess I'm okay. But today, we're going to be introduced to the theology of the physical body, the theology of the body. And there are going to be ways in which your thinking is going to be challenged. It, it challenged mine. And I can't expect to know everyone's backgrounds and how you have been taught about your body and its relationship to the fact that you are a Christian. Um, but I know that there will be th some things that I will say that you'll potentially misinterpret, or there will be things that you will hear and you'll go, well, I never heard that before. Is that true? And there'll be other things that you'll go, wow, that is so right. <laughs> I can't control your reactions or even that I will say it clearly enough that you will understand me, because our relationship to our bodies is something that is deeply personal and not even easily understood by the individual himself or herself. So, all of that just to say, just hang in there and let the Word of God speak to you. Now, we are going to be specifically talking about sexual immorality because that's the subject that Paul's bringing up, but he's going to speak in general terms about our body as well. In thinking about sexual immorality, one person who's uh, kind of thought fairly deeply about these matters and says some things that are like, oh yeah, that's right on, is a guy named C.S. Lewis. And so you'll see a whole bunch of Lewis quotes, uh, particularly at one spot in the message when we get to application. Here's one that kind of introduces this message today. We grow up surrounded by propaganda in favor of unchastity. What he means by that is sexual immorality. There are people who want to keep our sex instinct inflamed in order to make money out of us. Uh, so, let's just think more broadly about our bodies and think about how much money is spent in the world on, and let's pick it all, uh, health care, the whole area of alternative medicine, the world of plastic surgery, the world of body enhancements, the world of exercise, the world of food and diet the world of pornography, it's unbelievable how much money is spent. And all those people in those various industries, some of them are legitimate, some of them are completely not, and some are in the middle, there are people who will seek to make money out of you. Because, Lewis goes on to say, particularly on the area of, of, of sexuality, a man with an obsession is a man who has very little sales resistance. You have an obsession about something, you're, you're going to be subject to being able to have your money taken from you. God knows our situation. This is a comfort. 
he will not judge us as if we had no difficulties to overcome. Aren't you glad God's a merciful God? So with that in mind, let's stand for the reading of Scripture this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 12 through 20 today, verses 12 through 20, 1 Corinthians 6. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh." But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Please have a seat. Now this morning, we're going to have a very simple outline. It's got four points to it. The first is kind of introductory. The body's really important to God. And then we're going to see how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all have a relationship to our body our physical bodies. This is a remarkable teaching that the Apostle Paul gives here. First, let's think about how the body is really important to God. Verses 12 and 13. Um, Not everything is a rule, but that doesn't make it unimportant. So we should focus at least somewhat on the discipline of the body. All things are lawful, but not everything is helpful. There's going to be a lot of things in relationship to your body that wouldn't be a sinful thing to participate in as a believer, but not everything is helpful. All things are lawful, but he says, I will not be dominated by anything. We should focus in some fashion, at least, on the control of our bodies so that we will not be dominated by anything. So here I think Paul is speaking in more general terms that the body, your body, is really important to God. So whether it has to do with food or sex or exercise or sleep or what you put in or on your body, it's all something that should be somehow surrendered to God. The appetites that the body finds important right now are not going to last. Verse 13, food is meant for the stomach. Can we get an amen on that, right? We should have this for next week for the Super Bowl parties, right? Food is meant for the stomach. God designed food 
to go into our stomachs in order to nourish our bodies. And God designed the stomach for food. Isn't this remarkable? I mean, if you went into the details just of digestion, you would be amazed at the wonderful, beautiful thing that God has done. And yet, this text says that's not going to last forever. There's going to come a time when God will destroy both one and the other. That is, this process is not going to last forever. But our bodies are going to. Do you see the end of verse 14? The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. There's going to be a resurrection body that will, is somehow integrally related to the body that we have right now that is going to last forever. You see, the body is really important to God. So let's think about the triune God here in relation to our bodies. This is an amazing teaching here because lots of people will say, well, the Trinity is not mentioned in the Bible, the term Trinity. But everywhere in the Bible, the Bible is declaring that God is one God existing in three persons. And this is no exception. You, you should walk away if for nothing else, in awe of the beauty of Paul's writing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to give us the relationship of the triune God with our bodies. First, God the Father has a keen interest in my body. Notice the end of verse 14 or verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. My body's meant for the Lord Jesus, not for sexual immorality. And that's a, a beautiful thing. The body is meant for the Lord. God has a design for our bodies that will last forever. Our bodies right now, they are going to turn to dust, but there's going to be a resurrection body that we will have that's going to be connected in some way to the body we have right now that's going to last forever, and the, the body is meant for the Lord. But here's the thing that really got me as I was looking at this passage. Look at the end of verse 13. The body's not meant for for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is meant for the body. That. Did you catch it? The Lord is meant for the body? Not that the purpose of God or of the Lord Jesus is to build our bodies. Rather, the Lord's work has a specific purpose for our bodies. The Lord Jesus' work has a specific purpose and goal for our bodies. How is that? Verse 14, God raised the Lord Jesus and will also raise us up by His power. There will be a real connection between the body we have right now and our resurrection body. Now, when you start to ask me more details on that, I'm going to get really quickly to I don't know. There are specific questions. We don't know about that. But the key point to be made here is the fact that my body right now 
has a deeper connection with my resurrection body than I might imagine. God, who raised Jesus from the dead, God the Father, who raised Jesus from the dead, is going to raise me from the dead too. By His power, He's going to do it. Now, if you've been a thinking Christian, you might be asking a question at this point. How can that be if when you die, the Bible tells us that if you are absent from the body, you are present with the Lord? It's a good question, isn't it? The answer is that when you die as a Christian, you do indeed go to be with the Lord, but you aren't complete yet. The whole process isn't played out yet. That there's coming a time when Jesus is going to return, and when He does, we who have died and we who live and remain are going to receive resurrection bodies. Philippians chapter 3, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies, note the intimate connection, transform our lowly bodies, the bodies we have right now, transform them to be like His glorious body. Isn't that terrific? So that, I think that may be why in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Bible says the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Why first? Well, they're not complete. We've got to get them their resurrection bodies. Now, it's a matter of microseconds would be my guess as to how quickly we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. But notice this connection with our bodies. Some of us have, maybe we should term it, a difficult relationship with our bodies. We're not sure we like them very much. There's parts about them that we don't like. Hear this, dear one. God the Father made you. He has a keen interest in your body. He sees a unity between the body that He has designed for you here and the body that you will have when He raises you with a resurrection body. Isn't that beautiful? And so, we can conclude from the standpoint of sexual immorality, sexual immorality is wrong because the body doesn't belong to immorality. It doesn't even belong to you. Your body does not belong to you. It belongs to God. You've heard people say, it's my body. They say it almost defiantly. It's my body. For the believer, we say tenderly, it's your body, God. It's yours. God the Father has a keen interest in my body. God the Son shares a unity with my body. 
My union with Christ is through His resurrection. Look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? My body is joined to His via the resurrection. Jesus at one time did not have a body because He was not incarnate. The eternal Word took on human flesh. He who is eternally God, eternally God the Son, became the God-man with a real human body in space and time, and Jesus really died. That is, His body that He really possessed ceased to function. And God raised Jesus bodily from the dead. And so Jesus now and forever is the God-man having true humanity with a resurrection body. He will never stop being human. The resurrection body of Jesus has a unity with the body of Jesus before he died. How do we know that? Do you remember his meeting with the uh, disciple Thomas? Thomas said, I don't believe it. Until I put my hands in his nail prints and in my hands in his side, I'm not going to believe. Jesus shows up because, Thomas, put, put your hands here. Put your hands in my side. There's a connection an integral connection between Jesus' body that he had before he died and his resurrection body. So, to review from verse 13, the first reason immorality is wrong is that our bodies were made for God, not for immorality. The second reason we see here in verse 16, the second reason that immorality is wrong is that immorality brings a spiritual oneness with evil. Now, I won't go into the details of how horrible Corinth was. It was despicable in terms of their views of sexuality and immorality. In fact, throughout the Roman world, if you wanted to call someone an immoral person, you called them a Corinthian. And so the problem here in the church is people were allowing the world to squeeze them into its mold, and Paul is addressing this, is, this subject very directly, and he says... Immorality is wrong because sexual immorality brings spiritual oneness with evil. Verse 16, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Now, <clears throat> there are two errors that can be made here in understanding verse 16. The first is the one that Paul's addressing. That is to say that there's nothing wrong with uh, sexual immorality because it's just something you do with your body and it's all fine. Paul's addressing that. No, no, no. There's way more important things. Your body is being affected in a very horrific way by sexual immorality. But there's another problem. People have used this verse in the wrong way, and I want to address it. There's a lot of people who've said, well, you see, Paul says that if you've, had, if you've been immoral with a person, you are one with them. And then Paul quotes uh, the Genesis passage, uh, the two will become one flesh. And what has happened is that young people who make the sin of having uh, physical relations before they're married can get it into their heads, oh, I've had physical relationship with this person, therefore I must be married in God's eyes, 
or therefore I must marry them. That is not what Paul is saying. Do you understand that? Not what he's saying. He's saying that there is a really untoward and painful thing that's established when we have uh, engaged in immorality, but he's not saying that that is marriage or that you ought to get married in order to somehow make up for that sin. No. Don't double down on your failure there. <laughs> That's an error. Don't think that way. Having physical relationship with someone does not make you married. Having a physical union with a prostitute is unthinkable because we already have a union with Christ via His resurrection. Our bodies are, by union with Christ, joined to His eternal life. That's what verse 17 is about. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with Him. So, to conclude here, God the Son shares a unity with my body because He has a body. And as a result, to consider all forms of sexual immorality creates unions deeper than we imagine. Joining ourselves to Christ makes our union in the Spirit deeper than we imagine. And so we ought to reject the one and fully embrace the other. Thirdly, God the Holy Spirit indwells my body. So, verse 13, the first reason immorality is wrong is our bodies were made for God, not immorality. The second reason is that sexual immorality brings spiritual oneness with evil. And the third reason here in verses 18 to 20 is that unlike other sin, sexual immorality is most damaging to the body. It's most damaging to our bodies. Paul's making a case that there's all kinds of sins and you can categorize them all kinds of ways, but these are particularly difficult because of the, of the consequences for your body. Um, there are a lot of people these days who want to talk about a phrase that gets used, safe sex. And what they mean by that is safe sexual promiscuity. <laughs> and there's no such thing. There's no such thing. There's going to be consequences physically, emotionally, spiritually by those kinds of behaviors. So, in verses 19 and 20, Paul repeats the idea of why sexual immorality is wrong. Your body belongs to God, not to immorality. Look at verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God? You are not your own. This idea that we have that my body is mine, not for the Christian. Your body is not yours. It's God's. So we should run from sexual immorality. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Other sins are outside the body. Sexual sin is against the body. This means that sins of physical immorality are directed towards one's own body in a way that other sin is not. And so, physically, it can relate to disease. 
Spiritually, it relates to emptiness, and emotionally, it relates to confusion. Verse 19, my body is the present habitation of the Holy Spirit. Now, that is a wonder and a mystery. He, God the Holy Spirit, is in me. I received Him from God if I'm a believer in Jesus. I am not my own. My body is not my own. My, not, my body's not mine because I, the whole of me, including my body, was bought at the price of Jesus' blood. It wasn't just my spirit that was bought at the price of Jesus' blood. The whole of me was bought at the price of Jesus' blood. Therefore, here's the big point Paul makes, glorify God, worship God, honor God in your body. It's the big point he's making, that everything we do be for glorifying God in our bodies. Now, let's look at some applications. And you might think, oh good, he's, he's on application already. He's going to be done early. Oh no. Oh no. No, that's fool's gold, friends. I have lots of applications. First, our bodies are more valuable than we know. The triune God values your body. I know that some of you probably have an, a too exalted view of your body. You look at yourself in the mirror and you go, <laughs> look at that guy. And others of you look at yourself and go, oh, I'm a miserable mess. I'm a horrible wreck. Both things are idolatrous. Your body is more valuable than you know. The triune God values your body. We must not accept the idea that comes out of Greek philosophy, Hellenistic dualism that negates the body in favor of the soul. The Bible treats us as whole persons, and Christ has redeemed us as whole persons. Our eternal life is not the immortality of the soul. It is the resurrection of the body to a whole person made like Christ. Second application, our bodies do not belong to us. They belong to God. And there are all kinds of applications here that are outside Paul's main point of sexual purity. We face a lot of questions about our bodies, and the best answers to those questions are found when we think about this question, what does God want rather than what do I want? And most of the time, we don't even think that question. We don't even ask the question, what does God want? And so now I'm about to get misunderstood. <clears throat> There's all kinds of questions about our bodies, like cremation, body pierces, tattoos, plastic surgery. And do not walk out of here saying, Pastor Scott is for or against any of those. All I'm asking us to do as we think about those questions is 
Those questions should be answered by asking not what do I myself want, but by asking the question, God, this body belongs to you. What do you want? What do you want? Frankly, very few of those questions that I just pointed out have a clear-cut biblical answer, and so people who would tell you that there is one are probably whistling in the dark. But dear brothers and sisters, I do want you to be thinking more about this matter of you are not your own and how that might impact your answers to all kinds of questions about your body. Our bodies do not belong to us. They belong to God. Third application, some Christians have some very wrong ideas about the body. Some say that bodies are not spiritual, and so therefore we should ignore our bodies and their appetites as much as possible. Just don't talk about it. And that's a, that's a very sad state of affairs. One of the things that grieves me the most is the fact that very, very few people learn about a biblical view of human sexuality from their parents. Very, very few. It's almost like we think, well, if I don't talk about it, it doesn't exist. I'll just ignore that question. When, maybe when the kids have a question, they'll come to me, or I'll say something rather unclear, and then I'll say, if you've got any questions, feel free to come to me. That doesn't do it, friends. It's why, by the way, we have a beautiful ministry called Your Body, God's Plan, where we seek to connect parents with their children and being able to have open and honest conversations about their bodies and human sexuality, all those sorts of things. Lewis here, um, excuse me, Lewis says, uh, I know some muddle-headed Christians have talked as if Christianity thought that sex or the body or pleasure were bad in themselves, but they were wrong. Christianity is almost the only one of the great religions which thoroughly approves of the body, which believes that matter is good, that God himself once took on a human body, that some kind of body is going to be given us even in heaven and is going to be an essential part of our happiness, our beauty, and our energy. So some Christians have some very wrong ideas about the body by saying that they aren't that important, we're just not going to talk about it. Other Christians go in the opposite direction and say that our bodies are all important and how my body appears is all important and my body is for my own pleasure. And they get all wrapped up in one thing or another having to do with their bodies and these are idolatrous views of the body that ignore the truth that our bodies belong to God. Fourth application is views of human sexuality and the culture are increasingly opposed to the biblical view. We must promote a biblical sexuality that is more than don't, but includes the don't. Does that make sense? Um, there's an increasing acceptance of human relationships before marriage and of living together. One of the deepest challenges that I want to make this morning is to 
teenagers and young adults because I've been here at this church long enough to have had people who have grown up in our church that are now living with their boyfriend or girlfriend. And somehow they've crossed a barrier of acceptance to that by which they're letting the world squeeze them into its mold to their own hazard and perhaps lifelong difficulty. We need to promote a biblical sexuality that includes the don't, but is much more than the don't. To say that there is a beautiful thing out here that God has designed that can be yours. Got a lot of quotes from Lewis on this. They tell you sex has become a mess because it was hushed up. You know, the, the psychologists of the world say it's all because of repression and not talking and all of that. And we talked about the importance of talking just a few seconds ago. But for decades, in the broader culture, it has not been hushed up. It's been chattered about all day long, and yet it's still a mess. If hushing up had been the cause of the trouble, ventilation would have set it right, but it has not. Okay. Um, poster after poster, film after film, novel after novel, associate the idea of sexual indulgence with the ideas of health, normality, youth, frankness, and good humor. Why is it that people will take the teaching that they were taught growing up in this church and then ignore them in their own lives? And I would associate it with the fact that there is an imbalance in both the quality and the quantity of teaching that they are embracing. Note that Lewis says this association of the world's view of human relations is a lie. Like all powerful lies, it's based on a truth, the truth that sex in itself, apart from the excesses and obsessions that have grown around it, is normal and healthy and all the rest of it. The lie consists in the suggestion that any sexual act to which you are tempted at the moment is also healthy and normal. It's not. When people say sex is nothing to be ashamed of, what they really mean is the state to in which the sexual instinct is now got is nothing to be ashamed of. If they mean that, I think they're wrong. I think there's everything to be ashamed of in that. Very often, what God... Now, this is where there's some hope. Here's where some help for you. Very often, what God first helps us toward is not the virtue itself, but just this power of always trying again. Some of you may be in a spot, whether it's in terms of your sexuality or in some other aspect of your body where you feel like I've failed over and over and over and I feel like I'm getting beat up here. And that's not the intention here today. Sometimes you are here, what I want to suggest to you is that you may be here for this moment for the Lord to speak into your life not the virtue itself that's being heralded here, but the thought that it could be different. There is a way that leads to joy. However important chastity may be, by that he means sexual purity, this process trains us in habits of the soul which are more important still. It cures our illusions about ourselves and teaches us to depend on God. We learn on the one hand that we cannot trust ourselves even in our best moments 
And on the other, we need not despair, even in our worst moments, for our failures are, can we all say the word together, forgiven. There's hope. When an adolescent or an adult is engaged in resisting a conscious desire, he's not dealing with a repression. That's what the world tells you. When you're trying to fight against your inclinations to do something that is impure, the world tells you, don't fight against that. That's beautiful and normal. Lewis says, no, no, no. That's not dealing with a repression, nor are you in the least danger of creating a repression. On the contrary, those who are seriously attempting purity are more conscious and soon know a great deal more about their own sexuality than anybody else. You're really tuned in. Though I've had to speak at length about sex, I want to make it clear as I possibly can that the center of Christian morality is not here. This isn't the message of the Bible. It is a message telling us the theology of the body. But if anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity as the supreme vice, he is quite wrong. The issue of greatest importance is the question that Pilate asked at Jesus' trial, what then shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? We may indeed be sure that perfect chastity, like perfect charity, will not be attained by any merely human efforts. You must ask for God's help. Even when you have done so, it may seem to you for a long time that no help or less help than you need is being given. Never mind. After each failure, ask forgiveness. Pick yourself up again and try again. Keep going toward the Lord. This is how we promote a biblical sexuality. The unity in diversity of the Trinity means that Christians are for the body without the worship of the body. In art, in music, in athletics, we Christians are a people who glorify God in our bodies. You know, our focus here is seeking to be worshipers maturing in Christ, seeking to be worshipers with our bodies. We are looking for Christ and His kingdom, not building our own, thinking about our own body. We're saying our bodies are yours, Jesus, and we're worshiping you. Lewis, again, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward, and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that the Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is being offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by a vacation at the seashore. We are far too easily pleased. And so, the body is really important to God. God the Father has a keen interest in my body. God the Son shares a unity with my body. 
and God the Holy Spirit indwells my body. How much more valuable than it is to consider this being the first Sunday of the month and we celebrate the table of the Lord, to consider the words of Jesus in a fresh way where he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. As we go to prayer, I want to spend some time in silent reflection. For you to do some business with God, perhaps there's areas where you have said, my body is my own. It may have been in the area of immorality. It may be in some other area of your body and it, you're not living as though it belongs to God. Let's take time to ask the Lord to reveal to us ways in which we may have gone off the rails and ask Him to forgive us. Now, Lord, we ask you to forgive us of our sins, for they are many. There have been many times when we have not properly asked the question, God, what do you want? But instead have pursued headlong after what we ourselves want. So, Lord, forgive us for that and help us in days ahead to be more mindful that we are not our own. We're bought at the price of Jesus, His broken body and His shed blood for us so that we may glorify You in our bodies. Lord, we thank You for the connection that exists between our bodies as they are right now and our resurrection body as it one day will be. We don't understand that thoroughly, but we see it clearly taught in the Bible. And so, <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we ask that you'd help us to be mindful of that connection and look forward to the day when our bodies will be made whole and new and just like the Lord Jesus' glorious body, Philippians 3 tells us. <clears throat> now, Lord... Would you help the person who's caught up in a stubborn habit to seek your help and they might be able to break the bondage of their own habits and perhaps the work of the evil one in their lives, certainly the world squeezing them into its mold. Help them to break those shackles 
by your power. Help them to see that the triune God is at work in setting them free. Now, Lord, we pray that anyone here who's never put their faith and hope in Jesus would find in these verses a reason to turn to Christ, that they are helpless against their own passions and desires, but that with Christ they can live for you eternally. So, Lord, help anyone who has not done so to turn from their sin, say, Lord, I I turn away from my sin and I run to you. I believe that Jesus died for my sins and that he rose from the dead. And I'm putting my faith in him to lead me all the way to heaven with a glorified body, worshiping you forever. Oh Lord, make that the passionate desire of every person in this room. And now as we take up the table of the Lord, help us to remember and even to contemplate in a fresh way exactly what it means when the Lord Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The bread is a symbol of Jesus' body broken for us. His body for us, O oh Lord. How can we comprehend the wonder of it all? In Jesus' name, amen.